0: Luke chapter 18, we'll be reading verses 1 to 17. Y'all hungry? Hope y'all are hungry today. You can stay seated for this reading, but Luke 18, verses 1 to 17. Jesus, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. June 6, 1944. Does that date ring a bell for you? some of you history buffs, it's D-Day, the first D-Day. For those of you who are unaware of what that was, just a little recap, D-Day, June 6, 1944, that was the largest amphibious invasion ever in history, especially regarding World War II. And many people consider D-Day to be a significant moment, significant time in the entirety of World War II. For when the 160,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches in Normandy, France, many people consider that in retrospect, that was the beginning of the end of the war. Now, those of you who are aware, know history well, the war was not officially over until September 2nd, 1945, on VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. But in between that time, right, it was a year and a couple months, everything that happened in between, you could say it was an actualization or a realization of the victory that commenced on D-Day. In other words, the trajectory of the war was determined on D-Day. The Allied powers had the grip, they had the strength, they had the momentum, and then little by little after that day, on until the very end of the war, The world as a whole both experienced and recognized the victory that was secured and bought on that day through the many lives of the allied powers. Now, for you and I as Christians, you might see where I'm going with this. For you and I as Christians, our redemption, our victory, our salvation was secured when Jesus first came into the world through the virgin conception. That's what we celebrate about Christmas. The government will be upon his shoulders. The world is coming to rest upon Christ. Jesus is the true king who has entered the world. And the kingdom of God came through his person in in Mary's womb initially, and then, of course, when he was born, in the manger. But the renewal of the world, what we long for as people, as individuals, as Christians, the renewal of the world was secured through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Right, it cost life to secure our victory, much like the victory that we experienced after World War II. And the reality is, as we read the New Testament, as we read uh, Luke 24, the end of the Gospels, as we see in Revelation. Newsflash for you: Jesus has won. Right, Jesus has won. The victory is his. The victory is now ours through Christ. But we all know we don't yet fully live and experience that victory. We're still in this in-between time as we await Jesus to come back to inaugurate fully his full reign as king. And I, I thought it was quite timely when Pastor Jeff Scott came a couple weeks ago while we were in Mexico. I was able to listen to the, the sermon on Facebook, and it was timely in terms of what he shared. Because if you just to recall your brain, he shared in between the now and the not yet. In other words, how do we as Christians live in this in-between time? What should we be focusing on? And he shared wonderful truths from the book of Isaiah. And a lot of the Bible, believe it or not, is dedicated to this very question. How do you and I as Christians live in this in-between time? The victory has been won for us through Jesus. We await this future day. What do we do now in the meantime? Well, the answer is we are not called to sit on our bums and do nothing. We're not to just sleep and snooze the days away. But as Titus chapter 2 talks about very wonderfully, Titus 2.13, it tells us we as Christians, we are waiting this blessed hope. We're looking forward to this day that's ahead. And as we wait, you and I are called to live active, obedient lives to Christ. We are called to work. While we wait, we are called to pray while we patiently wait. And as we long for that day, we're called to love others. Now in Luke seven eighteen, verses 1 to 17, Jesus provides us clarity for how we are to live in this in-between time. Because if you notice in the previous passage that we went over a couple of weeks ago, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, so I'm glad to be back in it with you. But Luke 17, verse 20, that's when Jesus first began kind of this conversation or brought it up again with the Pharisees regarding the kingdom, right? When is this kingdom coming? When can we expect it? When are we going to see it? When can we more so experience the benefits of the kingdom? When is the perfect rule and reign of God coming into the world? Jesus talked about the kingdom. It's not something you see visually because you realize the kingdom is in your midst. It's here through my person and what my work and what I'm going to do. So in this light of the kingdom, Jesus now, in verse 1, chapter 18, Je- then Jesus told his disciples a parable. So he's, it's in conjunction to this, in connection to this. So from this passage, what, what I think draws all these three kind of uh, sections here are three realms, three areas, three directions in which God calls you and I to live as Christians. Right? Upward, inward, and outward. So if you're taking notes, as we anticipate the kingdom, the three things that God calls us to do is firstly, pray persistently. Number two, cultivate humility. And number three, serve compassionately. And I'll say this before we jump into the first point. God, listen to this, God wants you to experience kingdom victory today. He wants you to taste to see, to experience in part, the victory that has been won for you on the cross. right? We experience that in different ways, not fully, but we nonetheless get to taste of his goodness today. That's the wonderful God that we serve. And the way that we experience that is by obeying his word in the text. So beginning uh, verses 1 to 8, pray persistently. Now, you'll notice in verse One, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, some parables, as you recall, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a little bit, some parables can be a little bit hard to understand. You might be wondering, what is Jesus actually saying here? And in my own mind, I think of the parable of the shrewd manager, chapter 16. Uh, It's just, what what is the main point there? It kind of seems weird. What, What is Jesus saying? But here... Uh, Luke, the, the human author, he gives us a little bit of a window into what Jesus is communicating in this parable specifically. You cannot miss the meaning. There's no kind of, you know, a lot of allegory here. It's quite clear. Jesus told this parable in particular so that his disciples, his followers, might always pray and not give up. Your translation might say, uh, don't lose heart. Always pray, continually pray. Never give up praying and don't lose heart. Don't give up. And you'll notice, how, do you, how does God encourage us to do that? Where do you find the strength to do that? Where do you find the motivation to do that? Because you see, in Scripture and in this passage in particular, whenever God gives you a command, the way that you follow it, the strength, the motivation to do it, isn't from God incessantly hammering you on the head with it. Though some of us need to have that happen a lot, right? How many of us need to be encouraged to forgive a lot more than we ought to do? All right, so we need to hear that. But usually the way that you and I obey the commands of God is by being rooted in who God is. And that's clear in the text. Pray always, don't give up. And we see the reason for that is because who is God? How kind, how good, how gracious is he? But he contrasts himself first with this parable. So in verse 2, in a, he said, Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. So you see, first off the first character there is a judge. And this judge tells us he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. He had no reverence of God, no respect for the law of God, the justice of God. And it's not just that. It's not that he was just an atheist. No, he didn't care about people. He didn't care about serving the poor, serving those who had been oppressed, serving those who had been wrong. He didn't care about any of that. He was in this profession for the money. He was in it all for himself. It's all self-serving. What can I get out of it? You know, who are the lucrative cases I can kind of follow and find so I can make the most money, make the most fulfillment out of my own job? No recollection or thought for God or other people. So that's the first character we meet. And then verse 3, there was also a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now, the widow in this story, even today to a degree, the widow here is somebody who can easily be taken advantage of, especially back then. And we don't know who this adversary was in verse 3, but we do know that somebody, perhaps it was a family member, maybe it was a brother-in-law, somebody, maybe it was a child, somebody who was trying to take advantage of a widow, of their mother, of their sibling. Their sibling- in law they wanted to lay claim of the land they wanted um, the superior possessions they were trying to cheat her out of what was due her. We don't know exactly what happened, but nonetheless, there was an adversary who had wronged her, taken advantage of her, done her wrong. so she would she was in distress, she was in trouble, and what she needed was a superior person, superior judge to make it right, to settle the dispute, to grant her justice. And who is she going to call in this scenario? Not the Ghostbusters, but the scoundrel of a judge. It's the only person in the area, in that region. She kept coming to the judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And what was the judge's response? No, there's no money in this case. You know, she's not that rich. I'm not going to get anything from this. Yeah, just you know, shoo away, I've got more important things to focus on. But this lady is very persistent. Verses 4 and 5. For some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So, he was at the grocery store. She would, hey, judge, uh you know, you need to come take my case. The the judge was at the gym. Judge, you need to, you know, put those weights down. Come take my case. She would write him letters constantly, bang on his door constantly at home, just persistent in terms of getting what she wants. I want justice. I want justice. I want the wrongdoers to be punished. I myself want to be vindicated. You are called to do that work as the judge of this region. And the man, the judge, the scoundrel of a judge, he does it eventually. Not because he's good, not because he cares, but for his own self-interest. Get off my back. Leave me alone. I'll take your case. Now, Jesus brings all of this home for you and I, verses 6 to 8. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, church, the reality is like the widow. Similarly, you and I experience distress. Right? In this in-between time as we await and anticipate the future kingdom, I mean, how many of us have been wronged? How many of us suffer injustice? I'm not necessarily talking about the court system, but how many of us have felt the devastating effect of sin? of selfishness, of greed, and how that has wrecked our own lives, wrecked the lives of those we love. And what you and I need is a superior judge, somebody who's more powerful than you and I could ever be to make the wrongs right. And we have that judge in heaven. His name is God Almighty. Psalm 711 tells us, God, that's a memory verse for you, right? 711, there you go. It's easy to remember. Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge. Okay? Our God is a righteous judge. He is good. But more than that, you have to realize He's not just a judge. He's not just God. He's not just the creator. For you and I who are Christians, for who, you and I who have been born again, for you and I who trust and follow Jesus, we are now His children. And God Almighty is now our Father. We have a Father in heaven who, as Matthew eleven twenty eight to thirty tells us, He invites us to come to Him. Come to Me with your burdens, your requests. As First Peter three twelve says, that God's ear is attentive to our prayer, since we are now His children. First Peter chapter five verse seven it tells us, cast all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Right. The commands of God are all predicated upon the character of God. Pray persistently because you have a Father in heaven. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And you'll see the promise there. Will not God, in verse 7, will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you. He will see that they get justice and quickly. Now, as you read that, to me, that's perhaps the most problematic, hard to grasp, part of the whole passage here, the word quickly. What does that mean? What what does the word quickly mean? Does that mean in a minute? Does that mean tomorrow? Does that mean in a year? What does quickly mean? It it could vary depending upon context and depending upon who's actually talking. I think something helpful to know is that word, that phrase, that's used there quickly. It's used about 20 other times throughout the Greek Bible. Different other occasions, it can mean immediately. Like this very next second, it can also mean soon, another kind of vague word. It's going to happen soon. It might mean suddenly, and that when it does happen, it's going to come decisively and fast and quick when it happens. Or it can mean surely, and that it will happen. It will absolutely happen, decisively and certainly. And I personally think, and in light of reality and in light of Scripture, it's that last aspect. When Jesus says, "You, my people, my children, justice and quickly, Jesus is saying, surely it is going to happen. It will happen. And in light of eternity, and this is the big thing, in light of eternity, it will, will happen very quickly. Because as 2 Peter 3, 8 tells us, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. Because God is outside the realm of time. But justice is coming quickly. And this is the command, right? Church, in light of that, in light of the fact that God hears us, in light of the fact that we have a Father in heaven, in light of the fact that he cares for us, you and I are called to pray persistently. Right? As we feel the weariness of the world, as you experience the brokenness in relationships, as you experience the emptiness of sin, as your heart is weary, as you long for justice, as you long for all wrongs to be made right, you and I are called to pray. Don't lose heart. And in prayer, you might be wondering, what's the point? Right? If it's going to happen, why do I pray? If it's going to happen a little bit ways, if it's not going to happen today when I want it, why should I pray? But you have to understand kind of the nature of prayer. And that is prayer connects you to God. Prayer connects you to God. It reminds you of the God we serve. As Oswald Chambers has said, right, in prayer, we keep our eyes on God, not on our problems. And that's true with you and I. Right? Even though we may not get the immediate answer, we want this very moment right now during this service God will hear us. He will answer in his due time. And prayer connects us to his heart. I love what uh, one lady said. Her name was Ann Murchison. She said, The power of prayer isn't in the words I pray, not the place I pray, the way I pray, how loud I pray, or how long I pray. The power of prayer is found in the one to whom I pray. May you and I be encouraged with that truth. God Almighty hears us as our good, righteous, perfect judge and father. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep staying connected to him as you await the kingdom. That leads us to the second truth, second command. As you anticipate the kingdom, cultivate humility. This is from verses 9 to 14. Cultivate humility. So Jesus tells us here, To some who are confident of their own righteousness... Look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. And you have to notice what Jesus is doing in the, the structure of this passage. Right? Jesus is speaking about the heart. Right? Upward kind of direction, Right, upwardly pray to God. Inwardly, and this is related upwardly as well. They're all, right? We're a holistic being. It's not, you can't compartmentalize a person. But nonetheless, it is talking about the heart. What's going on in your inner being? And Jesus is saying the inner Part of your heart manifests itself through actions. And while Jesus highlights here the visible actions of these two men praying, right? He compares and contrasts these two men in public praying out loud, right? It's their speech, it's what's coming out of their bodies. The focus is on what's going on inside of them. And he says in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Right? That's an internal thing. That's an internal thing. Uh, attitude, internal disposition. In verses 10, 11, and 12, it's a manifestation of that inner reality. Okay? This is who Jesus is speaking about. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. You see this, the Pharisee's issue here. He, he doesn't suffer from this self delusion of perfection. Right? The Pharisee's not claiming to be perfect, he's not claiming to have it all together here. He's, he's suffering from the disease of better than ism. Better than ism. Compared to other people, I'm doing pretty good. I, not just pretty good, I'm a lot better than those people over there, than robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. And just a quick little footnote there regarding the tax collector. That's somebody who typically they're a Jew, who basically sold their entire personhood to go work for the Roman people. And and functionally, the people around them, they felt as though this tax collector, they betrayed us. They betrayed their family. They betrayed their people. They don't care about us as a people. They are working with the Romans who are oppressing over our nation. They are backstabbers. They don't care about us. And tax collectors, were that's why they're listed constantly with all the other bad people of the day, right? Adulterers, tax collectors, they were vile in the eyes of Jews. And the Pharisee is saying, I'm better than all of them. As I heard one pastor paraphrase, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like a serial killer. Thank you that I haven't been a part of the drug cartel. Or thank you that my family hasn't been on the Jerry Springer show. Right? Thank you that our family, that I'm not a terrorist. You could fill in the blank, whatever your modern day equivalent might be. But in, you know, part of this too, the reality is some of you might be thinking, oh, I'd never do that. I never compare myself to other people like that. You see, if you do, if that's your attitude, you just did the very thing. Oh, I'm not like that Pharisee. I never do that. I never. Comp-. You just fit the bill of this Pharisee's problem, comparing yourself to other people. Because if you do, it's always, always, always easy to find somebody you're better than. And the the analogy I've used before, or I've heard before from Ray Comfort, is if there's a sheep in a beautiful green pasture. And you look at the sheep, oh, it looks nice, beautiful and white. But if you take that same sheep and there's a fresh blanket of snow that drops on that field, does that sheep look clean anymore? No. It looks dirty, it looks filthy. You see it for its true colors. That's the same with you and I. If you and I compare ourselves to the backdrop against other people, especially other people's faults, right? We always compare the best of ourselves to the worst of other people. If you do that, you'll look like the sheep in the green field. But if you compare yourself to the perfection of God, His pure word of, the Word of God, you will see how filthy you truly are. And that is kind of what Jesus is alluding to. But you'll notice, it doesn't end there. There's a stark contrast. Verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? The beating of the breast—that's just that was a tangible, visible sign of unworthiness. In this context, he stood at a distance. He didn't feel like he could get close to the temple, close to the way in which the place in which you could get close to God. You know, physically speaking, he stood at a distance, kept his distance away from all the people, from where you really the good people are. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He had no dignity. He 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 felt so much of the weight of his own sin, that the only thing that he could utter is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in the Greek there, the word right there, a, a sinner, the Greek there, it's the definite article. It's the. Have mercy on me, the sinner. And that, dear church, is the true attitude of humility. what is humility, you might be wondering. Humility has two big components. It's an acute awareness of your sin and a bold confidence in Jesus. Right In verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness. That's what self-righteousness is. That's what arrogance is. That's what what pride is. I think that I'm better than, I'm I'm good on my own, I'm better than others. But you see, humility is the opposite. It's boasting, being confident in the righteousness of Jesus. And instead of looking down on everyone else, instead humility says, I am like everyone else. Everyone else is like me. And that we are all bad, broken, messed up people. But it's not just that, right? There's an acute, specific focus on my own inner weariness. I am the sinner. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, I am the worst of sinners. Is that your attitude? Is that your attitude that you constantly fall back on? Lord, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve mercy, but I need your mercy. Please have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the scoundrel, the dirty one, the, people, the person you would not think would be made right with God, this man went home justified before God. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How many of you know somebody who is full of themselves? Anybody? Somebody come to mind when you think of somebody who's full of themselves, right? And I ask that to say the reality is there's some of that in all of us, right? So all of us can have a little bit of, oh, I'm better than, I'm superior, I'm good, I'm, I don't need any correction, I don't need any. The point is, if you're full of yourself, what room is there left inside of you? As, as Charles Spurgeon said, I love what he said here, the Lord pours most into those who are most empty of self. Those who have least of their own shall have the most of God. And that's very accurate. You see, to experience the kingdom, this is what we're getting at. Cultivate humility. Why? Because in part, cultivating humility, you have access to the blessings and the riches and the grace and the mercy of God. If you are self-righteous, if you are prideful, if you say, I'm good, I'm better than, I don't need anything else, you are by definition saying, God, I don't need you. I don't need your mercy. I don't need your strength. I don't need your wisdom. I'm good. I've got it covered. But in humility, you are saying, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I need your spirit. Humility. Daily Practicing humility that enables you to be connected to God to experience His kingdom today. So, if you want to experience the kingdom, if you as you anticipate the kingdom, you and I are called to cultivate humility. And the one simple application point there I want to leave you with is I encourage you to read Romans chapter one to chapter eight, or if that's a little bit long, I I encourage you to do it, or Ephesians two. All right, some of these passages in Scripture where it's all about This is how bad humanity is. This is how wicked we are in and of ourselves, but this is how great and beautiful God is. That is the key to humility, an acute awareness of your sin and a bold confidence in Jesus. And both of those passages beautifully, especially Romans 1 to 8, talks about the wickedness of our hearts and the beauty of the gospel. Read that, delight in it, meditate on it, think about it so that you might further cultivate humility and experience his blessing. Lastly, as you anticipate the kingdom, serve compassionately. Right Upward pray, inward, what's going on in your heart, outward now, serve compassionately. Serve others compassionately. Verses 15 to 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Now Luke uses the word here that refers to Infants. It's not just children, not five-year-olds per se. It's newborns, tiny little babies. Many gr- parents and grandparents of that time, right, they heard about Jesus, they had observed his miracles, they heard his sermons, and they knew, they may not have fully known that he was God himself, that he was the son of God, but they knew he was certainly a man of God. And I want this man of God to pray for my child to bless my child, to speak encouraging words over my child that will shape and form the trajectory of his life. Speak words to children early. It's I mean, the same principle we live by today. Instruct children, even babies, in the word so that when they're old, Lord willing, they will not depart from it. Lord, we want, these, we want you, Jesus, to come and touch and bless and pray for our children. So many people were bringing these tiny little babies to Jesus. But verse fifteen, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Don't necessarily know what that rebuke entailed. Perhaps it was, hey, 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 get get out of here! Right, Jesus is he's trying to prepare for a sermon. Right, just give him a little space here. Or um, you know, he's busy doing other important things. Um, he, he's trying to counsel this marriage that's broken. You know, just he's doing a very important stuff. You know, just, just get out of here. Give him, give him some space. But then, as the disciples rebuke them, the master rebukes the disciples. Verse 16, Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's as if Jesus were saying, You see, my work is to welcome these children. The reason that I'm here is to serve these children. My schedule, it's about serving the least of these. And you have to understand, and you have to understand where I'm coming from. My own heart, right? have got three kids now. One in the, one in the belly and then two. Right? They're almost running around. Okay, so I love children. Okay, but just to be honest and just be frank, children, babies, particularly infants and newborns, they are... The weakest, least significant, most unhelpful of any person. All right, just functionally speaking. Okay, I'm not, you have to understand my heart in this. But they are. They're the least significant, the most kind of people you can just brush aside. They, they don't, and especially newborns, they don't actively contribute. They don't pick up the trash. They don't, you know, speak encouraging words, you know, thank you for parenting me so well. And, right, they don't do any of that. They constantly need affection. They need care. They need love. They need food. They need to be loved, okay? Now, of course, there's blessing and seeing their smiles, right? I get that, but you have to understand what I'm saying. Now, Jesus is powerfully saying, right, the kingdom of God is for such people. The kingdom of God, my work, my love is for the least of these, for the weakest, for the most unhelpful, for the people that society says, and especially in America, the culture of death that we live in regarding children. My kingdom is for these people who can easily be brushed aside in the eyes of the world. I love what one commentator said. He said, Jesus doesn't bless the children for their virtues, but for their deficits. They are important because of what they lack. They are small, Powerless, without sophistication, they are overlooked, and they are dispossessed. Jesus thus emphasizes in the strongest possible way that the kingdom is offered to the helpless. It's offered to the needy, to the powerless, and to the weak. Indeed, it belongs to them. Children have no roster of Torah achievements to their credit, as does the Pharisee in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The children are rather like the tax collector whose only merit is unworthiness. You have to see the beauty right there of Jesus' heart. Let the little children come to me. I love, I care for these children. I mean, both as people, but symbolically, who they are. they're, They're so small and weak and powerless. I've come for such people. People who can't boast about themselves. People who can't, you know, boast about their own accomplishments, I've come to save and to bless and to be with such people. That is why Jesus has a, such a heart for children, why God has a heart, why Scripture commands parents to watch out for your children. It is a most noble task. And Jesus says in verse 17, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, they will never enter it. What does that mean Well, a few, few ways you know um, how, how do children typically interact with their parents right there's a lot of humility they don't again initially there's not a whole lot of questioning of, of the, the heart, right They ask a lot of questions, but they, they more or less trust the parents again in the, the ideal context in which God created this, this simple faith, this simple trust they know by default. My parents are supposed to be the ones to provide for me. They trust in that. But it's more so, I think, right? Receive the kingdom like a little child. That is, receive it without boasting in yourself. Receive it not holding on to your strength, not holding on to how great you are, but trusting fully in the sufficiency of your Father. Fully relying upon the Father as a little tiny newborn relies upon the mother and the father. Children aren't a hindrance to God, and neither should we view them as such. They are a blessing to be welcomed and to be served. And this is the key, right? It's not just a command, because as you see, there's not an explicit command except for verse 16. It says, let the little children come to me. Right? The, The opposite of rebuking children The opposite of hindering children from coming to Jesus, whether it be sinful attitudes, sinful actions, sinful words, Jesus is calling us. You and I, let the children come to me. Encourage children to come to me. Point children to come to me. Bless the children that they might taste and see of my goodness through you. Be my hands and feet to bless and serve the children. And of course this applies to children specifically, but to all people. Bless and serve the weak, the broken, the helpless, the hurting, the people who need help, which is all of us. That's every human being. And it all stems back, verse 17. How have you first received the kingdom? Do you humbly receive the kingdom? Have you tasted of the the way that God has treated you? Because just be frank, some of us, some of y'all, some me myself included, some of us are just annoying. All right, But how does God treat us? Patience, grace, love, and compassion. That's how God treats us as we receive that gospel, as we receive that truth. We are called to share that truth with others, with children, with adults, with the elderly, with everybody. Serve as you have first been served by Christ. Welcome and bless as Christ has first welcome and blessed you. That is the gospel. That is the command you and I are called to live. So church, as you anticipate the kingdom, as you look forward to that day, don't waste the days. Keep praying persistently. Stay connected to God. Be reminded that he is our good father in heaven. Cultivate humility. Invite the blessings of God into your life by constantly acknowledging the simple phrase, Lord, I need you. May that be woven into your daily vocabulary. Lord, I need you. And then lastly, serve compassionately. As Jesus has first served you, you go and do likewise. To the least of these, to the helpless, to the broken. And In doing so, you will be able to taste of the victory of the kingdom of God. It's been one force through his life, death, and resurrection coming one day to fully consummate it and that in between time, you and I can experience his kingdom if we respond and live according to his word. Our Father, now we ask that you'll make your word effectual. Holy Spirit, cleanse us, purify us. Do the work we can't do. Let us transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Will you stand and sing the doxology with us?